It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Is God's Wrath Stronger Than His Love? Coming up in this episode, many people look at God and say He is the author of evil and a moody and petulant God who sometimes orders genocide to get back at His enemies. If you briefly read some Old Testament scriptures, you can definitely see where they get this idea. The question is, is it true? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. It's a privilege, brother. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. I'm blessed to be here. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Deuteronomy 7-2. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. There are many things in the Bible that are easily misunderstood and therefore easily misrepresented. Perhaps the most singularly misrepresented subject in the entire Bible is the nature of God himself. There are many who accuse God of being angry, vengeful, cruel, and unjust, especially because of the Old Testament. They, they write him off as unworthy of respect and laugh when the New Testament presents him as just, loving, and merciful. The contradiction, they say, is untenable and glaring. When we reread certain Old Testament verses without explanation or context, we can begin to identify their perspective. What we know, based on the study of Scripture and history, is that they are wrong. God does show anger and wrath and harshness in the Bible, but there is a plan behind it if we're willing to search it out. But Rick, at the time of this podcast we're doing right now, there's this devastating war in Ukraine and in other places around the globe globe, causing massive suffering. It's going to impact people for years to come. So on the macro level, we have an endless cycle of war and death. Why isn't a God of love intervening to stop all war? And a new study estimates at least 5.2 million children globally have lost a parent or caretaker from COVID-19. Why doesn't a God of love intervene for these innocent children and stop diseases? And on a micro level, why doesn't a God of love step in and heal our loved ones? Why are we born only to spend a lifetime suffering before we die? So to say God is love is the opposite of what some people experience. And you're right. You are right about that. There is absolutely a lot of things that that you look at and say, this doesn't make sense. God is love. Really show me. And folks, we are going to look to show you. Now, I can't answer all of those questions in this moment, but we can build a reasoning based on Scripture. This is part one of a two-part series over these two parts to show you how the God of love is, in fact, going to be handling all of those things without exception. So, Julie, hang on, because the answers are coming. Well, you know that skeptics and agnostics love to point to the multiple specific scriptures in the Old Testament, where, as you said, Rick, God looks like he's vengeful, cruel, and unjust. So let's bring up a few of these examples and crack them open here. What about when God instructed the Canaanites to be annihilated? That was in the book of Deuteronomy, and that doesn't sound very loving. 
Well, okay, let's take a look at it, okay? Israel had been delivered from slavery and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. When the time finally came, Joshua was to lead them to take the land of Canaan. So, so Jonathan, let's get started with this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. So God is saying, I am giving you, Israel, this land, and I will help you wipe out seven nations in the process. Why Why would he do that? You mean this is all over land? You know, like there's no other land in the entire world? It has to be this specific, specific piece of dirt? Like how could God view land as more important than human lives? Okay, good question. And it's an important question. And let's find the scriptural answer for that. All right? Let's look at it. And, and, and God saw this long before it happened, over 400 years before this proclamation from Moses to the people. Over 400 years before this, God told Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, of these events. And he said, what he said was the first key to understanding God's intentions. So Jonathan, let's go way back, over 400 years before, to Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they, that is your people, the nation of Israel, will return here, and that is Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay, so there's there's several points in this prophecy that God gives to Abram that we want to just put on the table. Julie, let's get started with those. Well, we know this prophecy from God was many years before Abraham's son Isaac was born. He didn't have any children yet, but here God was already guaranteeing that Abraham's future generations would return to the land of Canaan. And Moses was a fourth-generation descendant of Levi, Rick. So, yeah, and Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Remember, his name was changed to Israel. So Levi was one of the 12 sons of Israel, became with the 12 tribes. And Moses is actually a fourth-generation descendant of Levi. So in the Scripture it says the fourth generation, you see Moses appear in the fourth generation after those 12 tribes are established. And even though there were technically seven nations in the land who'd be killed, here the term Amorites used, it's representative of all the peoples who inhabited Canaan. And this is illustrated in 1 Kings 21, 26 and other places. The Canaanites were descendants of Noah's grandson named Canaan. And this is interesting. God would not judge the Amorites until their iniquity or sin grew to its full measure. And so when we look at that, you you see a lot of details. First of all, it's a prophecy that's very specific, long time beforehand. And so 
we want to understand that God is not impetuous. He's looking at things clearly, and there's a, a very distinct process here. Now, before looking at the depth of the iniquity or the depth of the sin that God pronounced judgment upon, we need to pause. We want to pause for a moment and observe the character and methods of God as he dealt with huma- uh, humanity. And there's going to be two really important lessons here. The first, we will see, is sin brought consequence. And the second lesson we will see is sin also brought hope. So, Jonathan, let's go back further. Let's go back to Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So there are clear and relatively simple guidelines laid out here. Sure, but Adam and Eve had no idea what death even was. So is it fair to hold such a penalty over their heads without experiencing it? I mean, come on, they took a bite of fruit. (laughs) The resulting punishment on them, and in turn all of us, doesn't fit the crime. Well, you know, we, we can look at that and we can say, yeah, we can pick out those details and say, yeah, look, look, that's not fair. But let's look at the whole picture and how it unfolds, and then we'll, we'll, we'll address that because you put it into perspective scripturally, and you see a whole different picture. See, inevitably, they didn't even need an understanding of death. Why would I say that? Because they would ultimately follow a new allegiance. Let's go to Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So basically, Adam and Eve chose Satan's leadership instead of following God's. And so the idea of needing to understand dying or not, Satan said, you don't have to worry about that. So they put it out of their mind because they chose to follow a different lead, and it wasn't God himself. And this new allegiance would only grow through the history of sinful man and get worse and worse and worse. And that's expressed to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, I have a question. Could it be that those who blame God are basically defending themselves because they don't want to be judged for their own behavior? Jonathan, I think you nailed something there, because here's what happens. We get all full of ourselves, and folks, look around in our world look in the mirror, and look at how full of ourselves we get, and we want what we want, and, and you know, we say, don't judge me, and I can do what I want, and I have my rights, and I'm just following my own dreams, and what you think is irrelevant. We've made ourselves God, and of course we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be looked at badly, because we frankly don't know how to handle that. And so we're, what we are, honestly, is a bunch of angry six-year-olds. You know, my, <laughs> my, my granddaughter, uh, sometimes when, when she doesn't want to eat something for dinner and she just put it in her mouth and she will go run to the bathroom. Oh, we're going to go to the bathroom. No, you don't got to go to the bathroom. You're going to go spit the food out. <laughs> you know, we don't want what we're not supposed to have. We, and and we, we decide this is not going to be for me. So we put this out there and then we walk away from that, which is good. And we don't want the comparison. So yeah, Jonathan, I think you're right. We don't want to be judged. So we point our finger and say, oh, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. Let's think about this. Okay. But before we get further in, into this, Okay, let's stop here because, you know, it looks kind of hopeless. Satan's the, the, the ruler of the world. Adam and Eve messed it up. Where do we go from here? 
But God, in different ways, planted hope. Remember we talked about hope from sin, where the course of events made it look hopeless. There are actually four ways that God planted hope at the very beginning. And we want to touch on those now before we get into the darkness and the evil of the Canaanites. The first point, God pronounced the eventual end of Satan's dominance. We know that in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, which means Satan's followers, and her seed, meaning Jesus. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what you have is Jesus dealing a death blow to Satan. He shall bruise you on the head. That's how you kill a snake. But Satan does damage in between. There's, but this is a prophecy saying Satan took the allegiance of mankind, and he will suffer the death consequence himself for doing such a thing. So that's the first piece of hope. The second piece is God clothed. He covered Adam and Eve in their sinful state with the skin of an animal. Perhaps it was a lamb or a sheep. We don't know. But Genesis 3.21 tells us this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So not only was God gracious, but he gave them protective covering for their bodies. The cost was the life of an animal, a sacrifice. And that's the key. There was a sacrifice. And you got to think about this. God is planting seeds of hope in the midst of sin entering the, the, the world of humanity. The third point, the third point of planting hope is because of other scriptures, we know that God had pre-planned for sin's dominance and would use it as an eternal lesson for everyone to experience. So you're saying that God knew there would be this intervening period of darkness before it became light again. Yes. Is that right? Absolutely. So that kind of reminds me of going through surgery. You know, it's painful, it's bloody, it's scarring, but in the end, it's worth that comparatively short recovery time in order to fix whatever was wrong. Yeah. And the thing about recovery time is you can say it's comparatively short until you're going through it. And then it's agony that feels like it's going on forever. But once it's done and you can look back, you say, wow, boy, was that worth the pain and the suffering. And we want to hold on to that thought because that is what God actually planted here. And here are the scriptures. First Peter 1, 19 to 20. But with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So you have this foreknowledge that this lamb, Jesus, would be slain from before the foundation of the world. God was ahead of it by a long shot. And then John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow, the whole world, not just Israel and not just Christians— pre-planned hope was already in place. And that's the point. You have to be able to look at this and say, as bad as it's going to get, and believe me, next segment, it's going to get bad. As bad as it's going to get, there's hope that was planted beforehand. The fourth point, the fourth point of hope, is God followed through on his promised consequences and thereby allowed his masterful plan of learning through sin to unfold. And we see that in Genesis 3, 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So God removed them from their source of everlasting life. That's the tree of life, which meant their lives would eventually cease. 
Right. He followed through. There was no second guessing. Sin happened. Consequences had to follow. So, Jonathan, as we begin to wrap this up, understanding God's wrath, what have we learned so far? We cannot understand the wrath of God unless we are willing to comprehend the purposes and character of God. And to comprehend the purposes and character of God, we have to carefully look. We're going to suggest to you four points of the purposes and character of God that we're going to revisit later on in this podcast. Julie, let's get started with the first one. God has a plan. He's not impetuous or egotistical, but he is wise, just, and loving. God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness. God is moral. His morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us. God uses evil. He is not evil, nor does he fall prey to it. For God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan. So these are four very important points that are going to help us understand what all of this mess that we're about to unfold is for and what the ultimate good is from it. So if some are going down the road of judging God's actions, they'd better be careful to have all the facts. If God has a pure character and pure intentions, then why did he tell Israel to destroy seven nations? That's a good question. Let's remember that God was not arbitrary here. He saw the evil in the nations of Canaan and would not act against them until that evil grew to its full measure. Now, we can always ask, well, who decides what the full measure looks like? But the obvious answer here is that God knows and proclaims such things. And because God's the creator, he gets to do that. Yes, he does get to do that. And the problem is, we question God at every turn. You know why? Because I want to be God. I want it to be my way. One of the things that evil is for is to learn that God's way is the only way. And this is, we're going to get to that as we go through this. So let's get back to our issue. Here, Moses in Deuteronomy 9, 1 to 6, Moses is going to be speaking to the people in preparation for their eventual conquering of Canaan. And Jonathan, I'm going to, we're, we're going to pause in the middle of this. Deuteronomy 9, 1 to 6. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you, so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Well, the Anakim and Anakites were Canaanites. Canaanites were one of those seven peoples listed in Deuteronomy 7.1. And those were big guys. They were, they were serious warriors. And, and when the, the spies went into Canaan all long before this, these were the people they saw and said, no, we can't fight them. And Moses is saying, God is going to go before you as a consuming fire. Now, let's pause here, because to the skeptical hearer, this is obvious unfair treatment. God, for no other reason than favoritism, will plow these nations under so you, his favorite people, can just have their land. That's the skeptical perspective. But let's pause and consider and read a little bit further. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Jonathan, let's go verses 4 to 6. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. 
But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. And I noticed you read, not because of your righteousness, three different times. (laughs) So there's no overt favoritism here. It's important to note that God did not command the destruction of the Canaanites just to take control of their land. I feel a lot better. (laughs) They were being destroyed because of the depth of their sin. It was so immense. And God was patient. He waited hundreds of years before their immorality became so rampant as to have no recovery or possibility of repentance. So, and, and that's why seeing the context is always so important. So, so God had a judgment against these people that came to its full measure. So let's examine this a little further. What was this judgment based on? And as we go through the next scriptures, folks, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to use a big word here. We're going to get yucky. Okay. This, (laughs) this is not, this is not fun stuff to talk about. But this is something we need to understand if we want to see what actually happened here. Jonathan, let's go to Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 31. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods like that I also may do likewise. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. They murder their children? That's sickening. The world sees God as impetuous and egotistical, but here's the problem. People look at God like, They look at the gods they create because the gods they create are built on the image of man. Their gods are impetuous, sensual, emotional, jealous, and are full of warring and hate. God is not like this. And, you know, this idea of of the destruction of children, you're right, Jonathan, the the burning these children in sacrifice to this god Moloch, it was for the purpose of crops, and we're going to get into that in a moment. But you think about it, children burned alive, and they burned children up to four years old. And, and you think about how could, how could they be so dark and evil? But folks, listen. Listen. We look at that, and it's easy to point fingers. Let's look at ourselves. And without getting into detail, let's just consider some of the uh, abortion techniques that are, that are absolutely legal in our world. Partial birth abortion, you've probably heard of it. I'm not going to get into what it is. But think about the inhumane treatment back then and now and say, okay, are we somehow or other on a par? I mean, let's just think about this. Let's put this in perspective. You know, evil is fascinating. 
And there's something in us that likes to see just how far we can take things. And, you know, in, in preparing for this lesson, we saw that they went down every road that God sees as abominable. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it. And it's hideous. But one observation I had when when we read secular writings about battles in the ancient world, there's often a glorification of conquests with graphic descriptions of what they did with the bodies of the enemy we don't find that in the Bible. God and Israel didn't take pleasure in the killing of these people. We're going to see why it was necessary. And necessary becomes the operative word here. So, so let's go a little bit further now. The depravity of the Canaanites was bigger and even more graphic than the scriptures detail. Now, we started to get into some things, and the, and the generalization was every abominable act which the Lord hates, they've done. Okay, that gives you an idea of the kind of road we're going down. Let's expand it a little bit further, Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or sorcery, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. But we don't often use the word divination. This means seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means like fortune-telling, mediums, and spiritists. Yeah, and you know, one of the things they did to seek out the future is they cut open little birds and read their entrails. I mean, you think about things like that and say, wait, 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 what is going on? So there was, a, again, detestable things. There are a lot, there's a lot here that once analyzed gives a broad-based description of people who were obsessed, like you said, Jonathan, with pleasing their gods and wanting to know the future. They did this by committing unspeakable acts. We're just going to mention some of these as we observe God's judgment. So, Julie, let's expand on this. Sure. We'll quote from the book, The Message of Deuteronomy by Raymond Brown. Quote, the Canaanites had an essentially pragmatic approach to worship. They wanted abundant harvests, so at their hilltop shrines, they indulged in practices which they considered might encourage fertility and growth. Their worship patterns became little else than sexual orgies with a religious scenario. Okay, so that's part of it. And, you know, and Julie, you said earlier that sometimes evil is fascinating. And look, a lot of people are going to hear that and say, well, that's kind of fascinating. But you've got to think about it in terms of the sacredness of human relationships and how we have completely taken those things and thrown them out the window. Uh, let, let's continue with another quote from, from that book, Julie. Sure. Canaanite worship was socially destructive. Its religious acts were pornographic and sick, seriously damaging to children, creating early impressions of deities with no interest in moral behavior. It tried to dignify, by use of religious labels, depraved acts of bestiality and corruption. It had a low estimate of human life. It suggested that anything was permissible, promiscuity, murder, or anything else, in order to guarantee a crop at harvest. And so when we say anything was permissible, the Canaanites did engage in anything. And it's further, historically, it is verifiable around that time of the Exodus that many penalties for things which the Canaanites had in previous generations seen as questionable, the penalties were made very lax and like, ah, yeah, don't worry about it, anything goes. And that's literally where they were. We got this information from an article by Clay Jones, We Don't Hate Sin, 
so we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites, an addendum to divine genocide arguments, uh, pages 57 and 64. The point here is there were no penalties for heinous acts. They were actually encouraged on every level. And again, from things like the, the, the sacrifice of children to lying and cheating and bestiality and all of these other things and, 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 and divination and all of the sorcery, this was all part of that culture, and God destroyed them. And just a word, some of the uh, historical accounts of this are so bad that uh, I, I don't even want to read any of it. <laughs> you were starting to talk about it. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm yeah. good. We get the point. They were bad. Yeah, thank yeah. You. As a matter of fact, I said, Julie, you want me to send you the articles? And nope. you're like, nope. <laughs> no, <Nope>. thank you. <laughs> so, you know, we don't like uncertainty, though. Humans quickly turn superstitious like they did to try to make sense of things. You know, they said they wanted crops. So, oh, if we do this, that's what's going to make crops. The Israelites receive the law from God to keep them pure and give them real guidance and real truth. Well, contrast the moral code of the Canaanites with Israel and the Jewish law. The commandments are all about respect and morality. They're all about the sacredness of life and the care for one another. So let's think about this. Let's go through the Ten Commandments because you will see that throughout the entire Old Testament, these commandments are repeatable. So they didn't change. They didn't, they didn't get compromised in terms of what they were supposed to be. So let's just go through them very quickly. Jonathan, get started with the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. And we have a special series on each individual commandment at christianquestions.com slash the number 10 dash commandments. So it's christianquestions.com, then the number 10 dash commandments. It's a great study resource showing how the law protected the sanctity of life. And that's the key. The, the Jewish law connect, uh, protected the sanctity of life. It's, it's very important to realize that. And there is a startling difference between the law that honors God that you just went through and those around you and the beliefs that are based on fundamental disregard for life, the Canaanite beliefs, the sen- base sensuality, the dark arts of divination. There's, there's a huge difference between those two things. And divining and magic called upon the dark spirit world that offered only darkness and evil with no guidance on how to live godly and productive lives. So no wonder they were they were plugged into that dark world. And from darkness only comes destructiveness. And that's where we are. So God's warnings about keeping any shred of this evil society intact, we can see now after reviewing it, were very clear and very justified. And those warnings are given in Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 to 5. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall they take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire." So God's instructions were very clear. 
leave no evidence of any of the abomination of any of these heinous acts. And it's interesting, Julie, you said it before, uh, sin is fascinating. And that's why it says that if you intermarry, you'll be drawn away. They won't be drawn toward the sacredness of life. You'll be drawn toward the darkness. And so God is emphatic about the destruction of every shred of this. Now, as bad as this is, does this justify the killing of everyone? Well, what God is saying, right, is to be pure, and wrong or evil has to be obliterated. There's no gray area. And that is something, especially in ancient cultures, we have to understand. We could say, well, they could have done this and they could have done that. But in ancient culture, you didn't have the capacity to, to do something in between. It was, it was, it was kill or be killed in, in those cultures. And so you see that God saw the evil and it was so rampant. He allowed it to get that way. And then it was like, okay, it's over. It's done. We cannot tolerate this any longer. Understanding God's wrath, Jonathan, what do we have? For anyone to judge God, the creator, regarding ancient times is an immature practice. Proclaiming him a monster is to ignore many specific events and social structures in history. God is bigger than our emotions and our rash conclusions. And I can't help but think about what you said before, Jonathan. When we point our finger at God and try to blame him, oftentimes it's because we want to protect ourselves from feeling judged because we have this sense that I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. God doesn't operate that way, and we have no right to judge him because we feel that way. So what it comes down to is it's so important to do the hard work to find the rest of the story before we draw any conclusions regarding God's character. This one example of God judging evil is dramatic and detailed. What about other examples? The Old Testament does have several other examples that at first glance can make God look overreactive and vengeful, and yes, here we go again. As we consider some of these, let's remember what we're trying to accomplish. Our objective is to see the broad picture of why God did certain things so we can truly appreciate his character and his plan. We want to understand these things so we can see the character of God and, and not get lost in the details of something that, that looks harsh. Example, some say the Bible admits that God himself is the creator and perpetrator of evil. Jonathan, let's look at Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. This is from the King James Version. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay. Go ahead, Julie. I, I create evil. I don't like that. <laughs> okay. So we, we looked at the Bible commentary from J. Vernon McGee, and it said to this, this phrase, and create evil, the word evil does not mean wickedness in this instance, but rather sorrow, difficulties, or tragedies those things which are the fruit of evil, the fruit of sin. So what does that mean? So what it's saying is God does not create evil, but he does create harshness in relation to it. And, and just to, to prove the point that what, what that scripture said does need to be re, re, reviewed, reworked essentially, let's look at Isaiah 45 verses 6 and 7, same verse, we're adding verse 6, but this is now from the New American Standard Bible. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. 
I am the Lord who does all these. So again, it, it replaces the word evil. It doesn't say I create evil. It says I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. So we, we see that God does bring hardship and difficulty because he's our eternal parent. That's why he does it. He does that. Does God bring calamity? Yes. Why? Because a parent, a good parent, when their child goes off the rails, does something wrong, should bring calamity to that child to, to alter their course. Calamity, the difficulty, the trial, the consequence is for the purpose of teaching the child. But you don't mean like calamity, like, okay, you did that wrong, so I'm going to send COVID, or I'm going to send that hurricane and wipe you out. No, no. That's, that's the kind of calamity no, you're talking no, about? No, no, no. We're talking about calamity, consequences to actions. That's what, okay. that's what we're talking about. It's a very different thing, and I'm glad you made that clarification. And, and here's the thing. God is a God of justice. Things have to, to work out. And, and when the sin is there, the, the consequence is there as well. Jonathan, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin will always bring death. Folks, say it with me. Sin will always bring death. You have to do something to avoid that, and that's where Jesus comes in. We're going to develop that later on. The point is there are consequences, and they cannot be avoided. So, Jonathan, just based on this scripture about God creating, quote, calamity or difficulty, what do we understand about understanding God's wrath? The fact that God does not let sin go without consequences should be a big relief as it indicates that he is ultimately in control. God, in his creation of calamity, often uses the rules of the sinful world to deal out consequences for heinous acts. So what we're saying is that God, because the world is so sinful, he'll often use the, the, the guidelines that the sinful world has put in place to say, okay, you know, this is what you would have done, and I'll allow it to happen to you. And it gives us a sense that there's this kind of justice that we bring upon ourselves by creating judgments upon others, and God can easily turn those back upon, upon us. So here's another example of God instructing the annihilation of a people in the Old Testament. You know that King Saul was Israel's first king. So here the prophet Samuel tells him to destroy the Amalekites. They're a desert tribe living in that same area south of Canaan, even the women, children, and animals. And we're going to pick up the account in 1 Samuel 15, 1 to 3. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both men and women, children and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wow. Now that sounds extreme. As, the, as extreme as the destruction of the Canaanite nations. So let's look, dig a little bit deeper, and let's see what we can find, because there was an inherent evil in this people as well. Why would God make such a pronouncement? Well, here's what he is responding to. Let's go to Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. 
Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So think about what these people did. Israel was in captivity for all that time in Egypt, and now they're finally released and they're walking away. They are not armed. They are not dangerous. They were slaves for hundreds of years, for a long time. And these Amalekites came and came up from behind and mercilessly killed the stragglers, the weary, the faint, the sick, those who couldn't keep up with, with, with the rest. Why? Because they were there. There was just this darkness, this lack of, 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 of respect for the sacredness of life. And when we look at all of this, that's something that God does not ever, ever, ever treat uh, lightly. When you disrespect the sacredness of life, there's inevitably consequences. Now, these Amalekites were there several times to fight Israel, and in some instances they fought Israel alongside the Canaanites. Yeah, they've got a long history with Israel. These are a hateful and murderous people. And in the end, King Saul allowed that uh, Amalekite king to live, causing disastrous results for hundreds of years afterward. They raided villages of the Israelites. They even took two of King David's wives hostage. So you've got a long history, and God basically said to King Saul, okay, finish it. Finish it enough. Well, these were hard commands. There's no question. And Saul didn't obey them. There's no question there either. And and what we see then is a continued focus on standing against acts that violate the sanctity of life. This is what God stands for. And you say, well, yeah, but he does a lot of killing in, in, in relation to it. Yes, he does. Yes, absolutely. There is no argument there. Why would he, we all take that and say, well, that's how is killing supporting the sanctity of life? Really good question. We're developing that as we go through this. God's law of strict justice was there to identify the degradation of sin. Because if you're going to have an eternal plan, you have to have everything very clearly in place. The law identified how bad sin was. Remember, the law showed us the sacredness of life. Further, God's actions were just in the context of an unjust world, and he handed out the same harsh punishment to the enemies of God's people as they would themselves execute upon God's people. So you have this giving back what people would have given, a way of, of serving justice. An interesting point, a thousand, a thousand years later, a direct descendant of that same Amalekite king shows up in the book of Esther as the murderous villain Haman, who tried to exterminate all the Jews. And if not for God's overruling through Queen Esther, he would have succeeded. So that's why it's important to look at these periods of time from God's larger perspective to understand why certain events are allowed. You know, another interesting part of this whole thing is that when you look at at Israel, they were never supposed to be the people that would go after others, unless it was in in terms of self-defense or in terms of following God's God's directions. They were not allowed to do that. They had to live in accordance with God's law under his direction. So there is a fundamental difference at how they approached these kinds of things. Now, you have King Saul here. We, We talked about King Saul. Well, King Saul had rewritten God's commands that were given to him through Samuel, and therefore he suffered consequences. Now think about this. King Saul is the first king, okay? And he has the prophet of God right in front of him all the time. 
And Samuel says, God says to do this. You can't misunderstand what's going on here. And Saul nods his head and then does something different. And that's where it all blew up. Saul would now suffer consequences because in God's way, uh, when you're dealing with the law and his nation, you don't just ignore his commands. So what happens in 1 Samuel 16, 14? Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. We know that Saul committed two serious acts of disobedience, one by inappropriately offering a sacrifice. It was supposed to have been done by Samuel and the other by not killing all of these Amalekites that we talked about before. And they were for selfish reasons that he didn't. Did God actively send an evil spirit because Jonathan read an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him? Or does that mean that the hedge of protection God put around him was removed and you know, now any old thought he would have would be permitted to take root. And we think he might have had some mental illness there, too. And, and the scripture does say that the spirit of the Lord, God brought grace and strength and protection to him. And Saul defied it. So when you take that protectiveness away, you take away that which is good. And you know what fills the void? Evil. You know why? Julie, you said it before. Evil is fascinating. Evil is attractive. There's something about its deviousness that people just love to, 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 to get involved in. And so here you have King Saul going down that road. And the problem is the higher one goes in the favor of God, the more responsible they become to that favor. Saul was favored above all, becoming a king where God didn't want one, and yet God blessed him anyway in spite of the foolish choice of the people to have a king. When Saul rejected God's way, God rejected Saul. And that's where the evil came in. Just like in the garden, God permitted Satan's influence to become Saul's chief guide. Just like in the garden, Satan became the chief influence for Adam and Eve. No, you won't surely die. Don't worry about a thing. I got you. Well, now they're all going to die. You know, so it, it's, it's taking evil and replacing that which is godly. Never ends up well. Uh, in Scripture, inevitably, will end up never end up well in life as well. Understanding God's wrath, Jonathan, what do we have? God's wrath has a foundation. It is wisely and powerfully built upon the principles of justice and love. Justice, so sin is identified and exposed for its true nature, and love, because his plan brings all of this into eternal lesson of righteousness for all. So we're suggesting that all of this darkness and destruction and killing and annihilation has an eternal purpose, an eternal lesson attached to it. So God's anger is big because the sin and degradation that he is responding to is a massive human life-draining tumor. After looking at these examples of evil, sin, and their harsh consequences, can we better appreciate God's wisdom? Appreciating God at this point would still be difficult for many, as what we have seen so far is hard responses to heinous actions. We can appreciate the protectiveness of these responses, but we do not yet have the full picture in place. We see hints of God's love and God's plan, but we don't yet see their full impact. What we're suggesting to you is we haven't fully answered the question. We're giving you a lot of difficult scenarios, and there's a lot of things you're looking at saying, yeah, but, but, but even though you said what you said, you know, it, it, there, there's still something more. So let's review this, because this is hard. 
Let's review what we've observed about God's purposes and character. And remember, at the beginning, we introduced four specific points to help us understand God's purposes and character. Let's review those points and then kind of see where we're sitting in relation to them. Julie, go, let's go with the first one. God has a plan. He's not impetuous or egotistical. He is wise, just, and loving. Okay, now we can certainly see that God does have a plan and is not showing himself to be impetuous. We've seen that very clearly. But it's still hard to grasp the wisdom part and the loving part. Those are still a little hazy here. It's hard to grasp them because there's still maybe some unanswered questions. Jonathan, the second point. God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness. Okay, we can see the free choice. We can see that very clearly in every instance. We see free choice reigning, even with Satan involved. It was his free choice. But seeing this free choice as a tool of righteousness, see, that's still fuzzy. It's out of focus. Because where's the righteousness? Where's the good ending for any kind of free choice that, that goes wrong? You're saying, well, free choice... When it goes wrong, where's the righteousness? All you get is death and destruction. So there's more to it than we've seen so far. Third point, Julie, what's the third point? God is moral, and his morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us. All right. While his morality is evident, the teaching part seems to only work for some and not others, because you got a bunch of people who are now dead. How does the teaching part help them? They're dead. They're gone. So you say, okay, yeah, God's moral, but how do you teach those that, that have been wiped out? So, so there's an inconsistency thus far. And Jonathan, the fourth point. God uses evil. He is not evil, nor does he fall prey to it. For God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan. It's obvious that evil does not escape God's sight. We've seen that very clearly. But his method for using it seems it seems random and even even a bit frightening at this point so we introduced those four points and we're saying to you now yeah there's still questions in regarding to those in in regard to those four points we've got to dig deeper and all this killing where's god's mercy it was being developed and this is where we start to look at things in a slightly different perspective all this killing. You're right, Julie. Where is God's mercy? And Jonathan, you're saying, well, it was being developed. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, if we look closely at the whole of the Old Testament, what we're going to see is a pattern of promise was being developed to defeat evil as a principle of practice. Now, this pattern, this pattern of promise began in the garden with the veiled references to salvation. Remember, we were talking about those four points earlier in the podcast. So this promise for hope began in the garden, and God later chose Abraham as father of the lineage, father of the nation, that would ultimately fulfill the plan, his plan, God's plan of eternal plan of righteousness, and subdue evil. Let's look at that, and let's look at God chose Abraham. You can say, oh, there he goes, showing favoritism. You know, he just picks a guy, a random guy out of the hat and says, yeah, this guy's gullible enough. Let me, let me pick him. No, let's look at what God required of him. So we're going to look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And Jonathan, I'm going to interrupt you at every turn. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So he tells Abram, this is before his name is changed to Abraham. 
He tells them, okay, I want you to leave everything that is familiar to you, and I want you to follow the strict guidance that I'm going to give you and the direction that I'm going to give you, and then what you are given is going to become something generational. But you have to first drop everything that's familiar and comfortable and walk away. That's a hard thing. Abram would do that. Let's go to verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So what God is saying in this next verse is this blessed nation. Now, Abram is one guy right now who doesn't have any children. Okay, let's get this straight. He's one guy with no children, and God is saying, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And this blessed nation that Abram obviously can't even see would be the conduit through which evil would be subdued because he would end up giving that nation, God would give that nation his laws and his ways, and those things would be communicated through that nation so the rest of the world could see it and understand what God would require. So Abram's in a position where he's just one man. He's got his wife, and that's it. And God is talking to him about a nation through which evil would be subdued. That's a huge, huge thing to try to get your, wrap your head around. Let's go to verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in you, Abram, and your nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The whole of humanity will benefit because of this one nation. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, a son of Abraham. And Jesus would be the one to ransom the world away from sin and back to God. So you've got this promise given to Abram, but it wasn't a one-sided promise. It was, you must follow, you must obey, you must comply. But what will come from that is a richness that cannot even be comprehended. You see that happen, and you see the nation of Israel grow into this nation. And it's important to recognize that God was hard on his chosen people as they often abandoned him for other gods. Let's look at two scriptures to illustrate that. First is Jeremiah 2, verses 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? So God is, is, is lamenting through Jeremiah, saying, what happened here? The, your, your fathers went far away from me, followed emptiness, went into idolatry, and they ended up empty. Because you know what idolatry brings you? Nothing. It brings you emptiness. It brings you darkness. It brings you evil. He said, I've given them blessing, and they just simply walked away. There's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that show us God's frustration, if you will, with the nation for just walking away from it. And then we have Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Well, Rick, that's what a good parent does. Children need to learn. They do. And it's, it sounds like there's a lot more to these, you know, questions about, about, you know, what God did in the Old Testament. It started in the Old Testament, but all around, all along in the background, there is this promise 
thing that's eventually brings us to Jesus. And I think that's, what's going to be the turning point here is, is, is the sacrifice of Jesus for all. So God's justice applied to Israel and they also suffered consequences for their actions. But, you know, you say that they kept going back and forth and they made mistakes, but sometimes these consequences seem really harsh. Does the penalty fit the crime? Okay. (laughs) I'm glad you said that because there's a big difference between making a mistake and making a choice. You know, a mistake is I picked up the wrong pen to write with. Oops. A choice is I think I'll do some idol worship. I think I'll seek out out of curiosity a little bit of divination. Uh, a, a choice is I think I will not be have, have complete fidelity to my spouse. Those are choices. Those are not mistakes. And the consequence for choices are much greater than a consequence for a mistake. So let us not make the mistake of mistakening a choice (laughs) and calling it a mistake, because that would be a mistake. (laughs) Oh, boy. So we don't want to minimize the wrong. Let me give you something new to say. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. (laughs) I was in this loop, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's important. We don't want to minimize the wrong. Uh, And when we minimize the wrong, you know what happens? We make God the culprit. Well, it shouldn't be this way. And, and inevitably, we try to take the attention off of ourselves and put it on God. It must be God's fault somehow that I'm in this situation. And folks, we do that. We just do that. And it's wrong. And when we look at the character of God, it is wrong on the highest level because there's a, an integrity that we can't even comprehend in, in, in the character of God. And, and with that in mind, Julie, let, let's talk about just for a few minutes. Let's recognize the depth of sin and destruction that humanity has inflicted upon itself without God. Let's look at some recent history, Julie. What do you have for us? It's so hard to find reliable statistics on how many people are killed at the hands of other humans. Milton Leitenberg is, according to Wikipedia, quote, an American academic specializing in arms control and weapons of mass destruction, end quote. Now, 15 years ago in 2006, he wrote a paper called Death in Wars and Conflicts in the 20th Century as part of the Cornell University Peace Studies Program. And through a series of detailed calculations, it's thought that from 1900 to 2006, approximately 231 million people died in wars, conflicts, and, quote, by human decision, end quote, including genocide, political terror, war-exacerbated disease, and malnutrition. And that number, 231 million people, doesn't even include just you know, everyday homicides. In reading about these accounts about the world, around the world of what happened to calculate these numbers is frankly nauseating. And it's because of ego, abuse of power, racism, inhumanity to humankind, and behind it is sin and satanic influence. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it really is disgusting. It, it is. And, and the point, folks, the point is, we love to point the finger at God and say, look what he did back then to this or that. And then when we look at the, at the details, we say, wow, it's a whole different story. How do you explain this? How do you explain in 106 years and very recent history, 230 plus million people wiped out because somebody, one side decided the other side shouldn't live? This is godlessness. So tell me, which is worse? When you look at God responding to dark evil or when you look at 
the goodness of uh, of of what he brought, and then you and then you you look at humanity just wiping each other out. This is this, it's ridiculous when we look at it uh, fairly. Let, let's change gears for a moment now. We all remember the account of Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Remember Sodom? They were destroyed. Sodom, incidentally, was another Canaanite city. They were destroyed because of their evil. What we generally don't think about is how Jesus saw the results of the destruction of Sodom. This is huge, and this is actually going to be a kickoff point for part two. So, Jonathan, let's go to Matthew eleven twenty three to 24. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it'll, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, wait, let me get this straight. The evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God destroyed, will have an easier time than Capernaum in the future? They will have an opportunity to turn their lives around? That's huge. That's more than huge. That's what we need to look at to finish the story. Jesus himself said they'll have a better time in the day of judgment. Jesus' own words, in his words, lie the link to understanding God's wrath in relation to his full plan and purpose, because that evil city has an opportunity. What does that mean? Jonathan, understanding God's wrath, let's wrap this up. God's wrath should never be taken out of the context of his ultimate plan for the greater good of all humanity. While this greater good is alluded to in the Old Testament, it is made plain and complete in the New Testament. And that's where we go next week. So folks, really what we're talking about here is looking at the perspective of evil and darkness and destruction and annihilation and, and all of those things and God's role in the destruction of peoples in the Old Testament saying, wow, there's a lot to it. Does it make perfect sense? Well, it hasn't made perfect sense yet. It has made good sense. But the perfection of the sense needs to be rounded by looking at the rest of the story, the New Testament. And that's where we're going next week. And you can't listen to this part without the next part, because part two will show us the character of God shining through and will tie up every single loose end that you may have in your mind after what you heard today. So please join us again next week. And until then, God does have it in control. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. And once again, coming up next week, Is God's Wrath Stronger Than His Love? Part 2. You don't want to miss it.